Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. I love hearing about big journeys to places I don't know much about. So you can't imagine how excited I am today to talk to today's guest, Mike Keen. Mike is in the final stages of planning a 2,600-kilometer sea kayak expedition up the coast of Greenland, and I'm eager to hear more about this incredible trip. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm doing great, uh, and I'm excited because we're, we're going to talk a bit about your trip, but also there's something else about what you're doing, which I'm actually really interested in. I've been doing a lot of research the last probably year, um, but let's start first with about the trip because it just seems incredible. Uh, it's a 2,600 kilometer sea kayak expedition. You're going up the coast of Greenland. Why? What's the impetus to take on this incredible adventure? <laughs> there there's quite quite a few reasons. The, the, the first one, funny enough, uh, to kick it off was both the names, the start and the finish names, uh, Kakortok and Karnak. Loads of cues in them. And I thought, oh, wow, that'd be awesome to have that as a start and finish. <laughs> so that, that's what kicked it off. I thought, come on, wouldn't it be great if we went all the way from Kakortok to Karnak? It's like five cues in there. And then I was thinking, yep, I've, I've, I've been in, spent the last three summers in Greenland. So I've, I've done a fair bit of kayaking out there. Yeah, before that, I was pretty much a kayak novice. But it's, it's quite a steep learning curve over, over there with uh, yeah, quite changeable weather. Uh, icebergs, icebergs spinning over without any notice and uh, like giving you some mild tsunamis filled with ice. Uh, had a couple of hairy moments, but I, I, th- I think I'm quite, um, I've got quite a safe head on my shoulders. Um, so I, I, I give them all the respect they, they deserve. <laughs> and it's also uh, the important thing behind it is, is climate change, obviously happening everywhere, um, but no more so obvious as it is in the Arctic and, and in Greenland. You know, even over the last three years that I've been there, the glaciers in the south, anyway, that I've seen and walked up to, it's another 100, 200 meters to get get to the the face of the glacier now in in just the time I've been there, which is which is really scary. And you know, I, I know all the arguments that you know temperatures fluctuate over millions of years anyway, but it does definitely seem to be uh, on a, on a rapid acceleration at the moment. And also there's a, there's a couple of scientific reasons behind it um, that, that I'm doing the kayak trip with as well. Uh, one of them being uh, microplastics. So there are microplastics everywhere now. You know, every other day in the papers, there's something about microplastics being you know, present in, in, in blood, in transfusions, in, in fetuses, everywhere, um, you know, in, in fertilizers, in the water table. So I've linked up with two or three scientific organizations and the British Antarctic Survey, and I'll be taking samples of um, poo, for want of a better word, from fish <laughs> and sea mammals, mostly sea mammals. So seal, walrus, um, polar bear, if I can get close enough, <laughs> um, all the way up the coast. So I'll be logging it meticulously uh, with, with, with the coordinates and, and where I found it um, uh, and pictures and, and, and my, um, my diary journal as well. And they'll be sent back to Cambridge via Nuke and they'll be analysed for microplastics. So they'll be using that to determine how much microplastic pollution is in each part of the coast. Because um, it it doesn't just come in from you know um, bottles or or actual physical plastic that's in the sea, it comes in through the rain as well and and brought on the currents. So it's it's quite important for for the scientists to check how much 
the, the glacial runoff is full of microplastics as well because that could indicate how much is coming down through the sky um, through rainfall as well so that's going to be quite an interesting one um, but the other side because I'm, I'm a chef by trade I've, I've been a chef for many many years and I've been uh, I got into fermentation about 15 years ago the more I looked into the whole fermentation thing it seemed to highlight how crazy the global food system is for me anyway yeah as, as a western trained chef and I've worked in the states in Canada I've worked uh, in, in New Zealand on the cruise ships yeah, all, all over the place and the, the overriding um, kind of control um, authority is is everything's based around the fridge you know if, if anything's a day uh, past its sell by date or it's out of temperature just throw it away throw it away all, all the time and I, I got to thinking that after a after not an altercation but a uh, an interesting discussion with an environmental health officer when I was trying to make salami here in England and they just didn't have any procedures in place for salami because it has to be it's made at nine or ten degrees centigrade so that's not fridge temperature so no it's not possible you can't do it and they, I just wasn't allowed to make it um, despite yeah me pointing out oh, the Italians and Spanish have been doing it for thousands of years safely what's different about us so I, I looked into it a bit more and, and like with, with, it was only two generations ago in England anyway that, that, that yeah, the fridges weren't common um, so what that, so I got to thinking what the hell were our grandparents and great-grandparents doing there and it was it's pretty much fermentation or, or just allowing food to overrun whereas now we throw it away um, back then it, it was fine it just turned into a you know a, something different and then I was looking into more extreme examples of fermentation. And it turns out the Greenland has got some awesome ones. They've got this thing called Kiviak right in the far north. Uh, and I was there two years ago called, yeah, it's called Kiviak. And in about April time, April, May time, they get up on the mountainsides with these huge great nets and they catch hundreds of little orc seabirds, which little black and white, maybe six or seven inches um, long um, and then they they take four or five hundred of these seabirds and stuff them inside a seal that they've shot um, and then they'll sew it sew, sew up the big cavity so all these birds are packed in it push all the air out and then they'll hide it under rocks or just stick it under rocks or underground for about six months and they ferment um, six months later you, you open up the seal and you've got this wet rag of a of, of a um, of a bird and you, you bite the head off and you drink the liquefied insides through the neck and then you just pull the feathers off which are, would just flake off and, and the meat is like a pate it's 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 we'd call it rotten but it's, it's <laughs> and, and, and they've got no trees there so they haven't got a, a history or a culture of fermenting or, or preserving the salt either so it's it's literally just a bird inside a seal that's been left same as a road you know kind of roadkill over here i guess um, so I got to thinking, you know, where where is that kind of line between fermentation and, and putrid? You know, at what point does it become safe? Or <laughs> it's it's incredible. And and if you look back through the the the, you know, the polar records of Arctic explorers, when they've had to overwinter, when the boats have, have been crushed by pack ice, or they they just can't move, and they've had to eat what the Inuit were eating, it, they, they, you know, half the time they started to starve because they just refused. They, they had these caribou pits where in a good year or a good hunt, they'll pack pack these pits with um with caribou and they'll go back to it in, in another year when, when when things aren't so rosy. But in the meantime, they've got maggots in, they've just, they've almost collapsed because they're, they're just rotten in our words. But again, it's like a paste full of maggots and, and you can eat it, but it, it keeps you alive. It's almost a delicacy um, for the Inuit, whereas these Arctic explorers, these 
stuck up English and, and European guys were going, it can't possibly be eaten, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, but when they realise there's nothing else, you eat that. So how is that possible when, you know, when we're so fastidious about um, sell-by dates and temperatures here and everything's got to be ticked and checked? How come it's totally the opposite over there? Um, so I've got an amazing team of microbiologists um, from Stanford University. I've got uh, another two or three um, universities in the States, Luke University, Cork, and South Bank University here in London. They're all microbiologists, but all got a slightly different take on the gut microbiome and, and yeah, the, the effect that bacteria on food has and how, it's, you know, how it survives through the gut. So I'll be taking samples of my gut bacteria <laughs> via the medium of poo um, and sending that back to Nuke University um, and they'll be yeah interestingly like rifling through it and then analyzing it for, for for the bacteria with those samples I'll also be sending back the, the food that I'm eating at the time and so it's just an Inuit diet that I'll be eating so 100% fish or sea mammal uh, and that at the time I'll be going there won't be any mushrooms There'll be very little in the way of greenery, maybe a bit of seaweed, uh, possibly seabirds and, and sea eggs. Uh, so th it's, it's going to be kind of a groundbreaking piece of research, I think, to um, just once and for all to get a fix on how is it possible that these extreme foods, are, um, how is it possible that we can eat them and not get sick? Yeah, this sounds super, super interesting. And uh, I've actually had some issues with my gut biome. I had chronic fatigue and it was related to getting a whole bunch of, I had a really serious blood infection and I had a whole bunch of antibiotics and it just, eventually after about nine months, they said, oh, we, we probably just des destroyed your gut biome to save your life. And since then, actually, even just in the last six months, I really made a commitment to eating more fermented foods and eating more whole foods and get rid of processed foods. And I, I seen to my wife actually last night, my energy, I feel like I'm 20 years younger and really all I've done is eat more natural foods and eat kimchi every day, a little bowl of kimchi, and get rid of all processed foods. And it's, you know, you mentioned how we ate hundreds of years ago. There, I think there's something in it, at least with myself, you know, I, I don't think it's, I don't think this is just something I'm thinking because energy isn't, you know, energy isn't something I think you can fake. Um, but I'm, I'm eager to find out what you find out with even more kind of aggressively fermented foods because, you know, kim, kimchi is still, still edible. Uh, some of the things you described, are going to push the boundaries for uh, for a lot of people not used to it. The more you look into it, it, it the more it's, it's, you think it's just common sense. You know that humans have evolved over millions of years, um, and, and we've pretty much been eating the same diet, this fermented natural stuff, without all these commercial fridges and and the uh, the fossil fuel fueled logistics system that we have now. Um, and we, we evolved so slowly. You know, our, our lifespans what seventy to one hundred years old. So. Any any adaptation through evolution is, is going to take generations, you know, and, and we've got like that almost in two or three hundred years um, have totally changed our whole diet. So it's gone from eating what we found in our environment, which was um, what, what we had to do because you know, we didn't have transport or planes flying everywhere, to you know flying stuff in from all over the world at, at, at seasons where it wouldn't naturally be available in in, in our environment. So. It is. It just totally makes it totally makes sense to me now. It, you know, you, as you grow up and, and you, you're bombarded with all these adverts on of, of processed food, basically, and it, it comes back down to pretty much capitalism and, and trying to make money out of it. I think that's one of the contributing factors to why our health and allergies and stuff are so so messed up lately. You know, allergies and intolerances are through the roof. You know, even when I started out as a chef, 
30 or so years ago, it was rare to get someone saying, can we have something gluten-free or dairy-free? Whereas now, it's got to be at least half yeah, half of the inquiries coming in through a professional kitchen will be, yeah, can we have this? Can we, yeah, can we have it without that? Because I'm intolerant, um, which is crazy. Um, and another part of it, I've got an anthropologist from the University of Michigan, um, Professor John Smith, and he um, has been looking into um, indigenous tribes and how they they ate, uh, you know, how they've eaten over the th- last few thousand years, and um, not just the Inuit. Uh, you know, a, a great example for the Arctic, but also in tropical regions where there's indigenous tribes who, rather than if they have a, have a fresh kill, rather than eat the meat straight, which we'd have a, a fillet steak or a sirloin steak, they they let it rot first. So they, they'll bury it in the ground um, for five or six days in, these, in the tropical you know, humidity and, and the heat until it starts to rot and it's maybe got some maggots in. Um, and, and it's soft and, it, and it's it's gone stinky for, you know, from our perspective. Um, but what that's doing is the enzymes are eating into it and that they're, they're pre-digesting it, making it easier f- uh, and more bioavailable to our own gut to eat and, and, and to transform into energy. So, that, yeah, I've, I've got him on board as well, which is which is great. And um, what, one of his things is that this disgust is a is a learned reflex. It's not inherent. It's not it's, it's not genetical or anything. When we go, oh, my God, that's disgusting. That's only because we've been conditioned to it over the years as, as we've grown up. You know, it's, it's I guess it's similar to when you're a kid, you hate blue cheese or wine or anything that's strong like that. It's, oh, my God, how can you possibly eat that? But as you grow older and you're kind of more exposed to it, you love that stuff. It's what, you know, it's one of the luxuries. So, so yeah, that's, that's how we can kind of condition ourselves to love these extreme fermented foods um, just by being exposed to it. I think this is, this is so cool, just the ideas that you're tossing around. But I want to go back to one of the first things you said, that you, know, you were a novice sea kayaker up until a few years ago, and you've spent the last few summers in Greenland. What was the transition from you do a bit of sea kayaking to spending every summer in Greenland to now going and doing this epic you know, journey? Yeah, three years ago is when I first went out um, and I, I had a book contract um, to uh, a publisher paid for me to go out and they sent a photographer out uh, and I was writing a, a recipe book. Uh, and then co- I was out there during COVID um, when it first hit and, and it, it changed everything and they dropped the book. But my, uh, I was out there. So, yeah, I had their money. Thanks very much. Um, <laughs> and before I went out there, I, I, I thought uh, I can't go out there and not, not sea kayak. And I'd never been sea kayaking before. So I, I paid for a two-day course here in, here in England and then went out there. Actually, the, the first couple of times were with a guide uh, up in Iludasat, which is where all the big icebergs are. Um, but after that, I was just by myself going out on the sea kayak. Um, and it's, it's unbelievable. There's icebergs everywhere up the coast in Greenland. Um, it's not just in the north or anywhere. The, the, the ice cap stretches from north to south. Um, and, and there's loads of icebergs that come around the bottom from the east uh, on the currents and then go up up the west coast so wherever you go you're guaranteed to see these unbelievable icebergs and, and I, I i can't get enough of them I, yeah every time i go past an iceberg i'm stopping to take photos because they're they're just absolutely incredible everyone's different they've got different colors and shapes um and they move differently and sometimes yeah sometimes when you're kayaking even like two or three hundred meters away you'll hear this enormous boom or a crack it sounds like they're mining in the next valley or something that's what i thought it was before but it wasn't it's the icebergs and it, it just it's absolutely terrifying <laughs> you're paddling away and you hear this it actually hurts your ears because it's so loud 
and you're convinced that a tsunami is right behind you or something and you look around and you can't see anything but yeah suddenly an iceberg's flipped over or it's split in half um so th th that was the real kind of draw for me was the spectacular landscape but also you're pretty much guaranteed every trip to see a whale or, or seals um you, you just be paddling along and then like 40 or 40 50 seal will just come up in front of you your, the head's popping up like um like that whack a monkey game which is like popping up like that um and then when you see a, a whale and it's only 20 meters yeah off your bow or something it's uh it's both terrifying and unbelievably yeah mesmerizing at the same time and so what's a typical day going to be like while you're on on this journey I kind of round it up to 3,000 kilometers. If, if, if I work on 3,000 kilometers to do it in 100 days, I've got to do 30 kilometers a day, which is very doable. I think I, I usually do it in about five or six hours. So I will be aiming for a, at least five or six hours kayaking every day. If it's a nice clear day and it's nice and calm, I'll try and go for 10 or 10 or 12 hours, just kind of putting them away for when it's stormy or rainy and, or, or windy and I can't get out. Um, so I'll be wild camping most of the way. Uh, there's settlements all up the coast, um, loads of tiny settlements. Pretty much hunters are everywhere up there as well. So they'll, they'll be out shooting seal, occasional whale, um, walrus as well in the far north. I'll have a fishing rod, so I'll be fishing either from the kayak or when I've stopped or before I, before I set off for the day. That's pretty much going to be it. So camp, set up camp. I've got a polar bear perimeter tripwire thing um, that will, yeah, I'll set up around the tent as well as a rifle and various bear flares and yeah, flare pistols. Set up camp, cook away from the tent, because um, if the polar bear comes, it will be aiming for the food first. So I'm going to cook a good 30 or 40 meters away from the tent and um, and, then, and then sleep. And then, yeah, obviously, as you're going towards June, but in, in June, around midsummer's day, I'll be up well inside the Arctic Circle. So it'll be full, full sunlight. Um, as well so it's going to be light the whole time so if it is a good day and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling strong I'll, I'll just keep going as far as I can that sounds like an incredible journey I'm a, I'm a novice sea kayaker I've done it in Canada's Clayoquot Sound but I remember reading Paddling North by Audrey Sutherland and she talked about you know the weather it paddling up you know all the uh, inside passage in, in Alaska but also the tides and dealing with that. And is that something you're going to have to, like I remember she'd have to wake up at 2 a.m. because the tide, that's the only time the tide was going to be suitable for making a crossing. Is that something you'll have, you have to be paying attention to is all these, you know, difficult aspects like that? Yeah, it, it depends where you are. It, yeah, you can only do so much research from England as well. So a lot of it's going to have to be, yeah, tapping into local knowledge when I'm there. I'm learning Danish at the moment, which is... Um, yeah, one of the official languages of Greenland. Greenlandic is way too difficult to learn in, in the few months that I've got. Um, so hopefully I'll better communicate. But yeah, the, the tidal races and stuff are are an issue. Um, I'll be there's there's not a lot of kind of narrow fjords and stuff which I'll be in. It'll be mostly kind of coastal sea, but I will use a, there's loads of islands up there, so I'll be using those as a barrier for the um, for the big swells coming in from the west. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah the the, the 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 tides will be a slight issue. I haven't had an issue before when I've been kayaking, to be fair, and I've I've gone out all, all, all times of day. There's like a three meter difference on the tides, so it's a it's a it's a lot of it's a big volume of water coming through. Um, so 
there will be a couple of issues when it when it narrows and, and I'm going out through, but I'm hoping to yeah just check the locals to see which way yeah if they've got any hints or tips about when to go or when not to go. But otherwise, I'm, I'm quite teched up. I've got a good um, I've got a sat phone. I've got a great tracker um, plus uh, a Greenlandic phone, and they've got really really good connectivity up there as well. So it's not like I'm I'm I'm, I'm flying blind. Now, now, one thing you mentioned, which which surprised me again, I've never been to Greenland, but you say there's little settlements all the way up the coast. So is this something that, you know, every couple of days, there'll be a little settlement that if you had an emergency, you could pull into is, Are they that common that, you know, you'll, you could see people if you needed to? Yeah, pretty much. Um, there, there's only the distance between the north and the south is the same as it is from north of Denmark down to Morocco. So it's the whole of Europe. So it's, it's a big stretch. And there's only 55, 57,000 people who live there, but they all live on the coast and most of them live on the west coast. Um, the capital, Nuuk's only got 17,500 people and that's the, that's the capital city. The, the settlements, the, yeah, the, of two or 300 people all the way up the coast, not so, not so many in the north, most of it's down in, the, in, in kind of the bottom half, the bottom two thirds. But there will be one every, yeah, every couple of days there will be a settlement. Some of them are, are quite far down a fjord. So if I need to go there, it's going to take me out of my out of my way a little bit. Um, so I won't go to those ones unless I, I, I feel I have to. Um, but um, other than that, I, yeah, I, I, I should be, I'll, I'll be popping in to a settlement probably twice a week, I should think. Those settlements, we build a buy, like, you know, if you need more fuel or you need, you know, electricity or you know like like will there be a corner shop there or are you are you going to eat off the land the entire trip yeah the, the whole trip is eating off the land so it'll be fish or buying from hunters um i'll have a rifle with me for the bears but i, I won't be aiming to shoot any seal but there'll be um yeah hunters all the time go out there and one of the scientists on the microbiome projects is based in Newark university she's she's gone on tv in greenland to say this englishman will be kayaking up the coast um, these are the rough kind of dates he'll be up there looking to eat an Inuit diet. Um, so if you see him and he's, he's, he's making gestures with his fingers to his mouth, there's <laughs> a good likelihood he'll need some food. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be taking cash up as well. Um, but there, there, there's hunters everywhere. Yeah. And I, I, I suspect I'll be sick, sick of cod by the time I get, get to the end of it. <laughs> and, and, you know, you're, being in your kayak for five or eight or 10 hours, like, like some people listen to podcasts or audiobooks or music. Some people I know they don't listen to anything. How will you keep occupied, you know, paddling every day for hundred days? I'll have an audio book. It's going to be, um, it's, it's a question of power basically. So I've got two or three really big power packs that I'll take with me and a, and a solar little solar panel array that kind of unfolds and goes on the back of the kayak. And the last three years, touch wood, when I've been there, yeah, during during the summer months, it's been pretty sunny. Um, but also because of uh, the scientific project, I've got settlements where I'll have a contact where I'll be sending my samples back to Newark University. Um, and also the plan is I'll give them my dead batteries, swap it for for fresh ones, and then they'll mail they'll charge up the, the dead batteries and then mail it on to the next contact, which will be yeah, two weeks up the coast. So I'm hoping between that and the power packs that I have, I'll be able to um, keep the power going. <laughs> it's funny. I know on backpacking trips, sometimes if it's a really tough day, just being able to listen to like a podcast or listen to a book or even a song. It's amazing just the power of that little thing after a tough day some days. Yeah, yeah. And, and when you're out on the you know, at sea or just kayaking, it's 
yeah, there, there's no roads in there's no roads in Greenland. Everything's connected either by boat or plane. But yeah, you, re- you very rarely see any of those outside the settlements, and it's so quiet, it's so still. And you go along, and you know, I, I've been paddling along, singing at the top top of my voice because there's no one around. <laughs> you, 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 you wouldn't dream of doing it, you know, in, in civilization. But yeah, there's me, you know, knocking out some opera songs and stuff. <laughs> Just if anyone, if anyone, if anyone can see see me, they'd assume I've gone mad. <laughs> What are the logistics for training for a trip like this? You know, is this something you're, you've spent all winter getting ready for? I hit the gym five or six times a week, um, mostly on kind of torso and um, upper body. So I do a lot of the arm bike, you know, where you hold the pedals and you just do that for, for like a, you know, an hour at a time and do lo- loads of um, low weight, high reps on, on, on dumbbells, different shoulder exercises, twists and, and sit-ups. And, and now I've got um, the kayak, it's about my kayak's about 10, 10 miles away. It's on the route uh, on the mouth of a river where it goes into the North Sea. So it's you know if it's too if it's too rough to go out, I'll go down the river and and just put an hour or so in of, of hard paddling. Uh, and when it's okay, I'll just go out to sea and scoot up the north up, up the coast of the North Sea a little bit. Um, but it's yeah, there, there isn't really a substitute for doing five or six five or six hours a day. And yeah, realistically, I can't do that. Um, and try and earn money. <laughs> It'd be nice if I had the luxury of being able to just train the whole time, but uh, that, that, that doesn't happen. So uh, I guess, yeah, the, my, my first two or three weeks, I've kind of allowed for it to be slightly harder while I, I you know, while I get used to you know, building up some, yeah, some serious hours in the kayak. Back in the UK, you run Cedarwood Homestead. And can you maybe tell me a little bit about that project? Yeah, uh, me and my partner um, Lucy, she grows heritage veg um, for yeah, well, actually, mostly for a, a big American seed company that um, have heirloom, organic, or amazing seeds of, of yeah, long lost varieties. And we got this place only just over a year ago, actually. Um, it's an acre and a half set in Suffolk, which is in the east of England, uh, and it's it's. It was derelict, and we've spent a good year building it, um, developing the land, and rebuilding the entire house. So we had a, a Channel Five here did a, a documentary on us because it was uh, you know, a, a kind of, a, I guess, a, an aspirational type project. Um, and we, we we kept the house um, pretty much exactly as it was before, except for the um, falling down and rotten and goats living in it. <laughs> type thing uh and I've, I've built a a root cellar I've built a big greenlandic cold smoker we've got goats and chickens and uh, everything's organic um and we're trying to be as self-sufficient as we can you know again harking back to my eater environment where it seems crazy to be flying avocados from mexico to to, to europe and then to copenhagen and then to greenland and then on smaller smaller flights going up and down the coast and then a lot of the settlements, you can buy avocados or kiwi fruit. So it's that was a big, <laughs> yeah. Even though we do that here in England, obviously you have avocados which aren't grown here; they come the, almost the same distance. But it, in uh, in Greenland, it's so much more evident that they don't belong here. You know, the, you, you look outside the window, and it's it's ice or barren, you know, just barren rock and mountains. Um, so it, it's it's been a real kind of um, crucible there for for me anyway as a chef going this is crazy that we're doing this you know we don't need to to, to eat avocados in greenland we don't need to eat them in england you know if you're in mexico then great and they're growing on your doorstep but it seems crazy that you've got all, all this other food that's available um but we're still flying stuff yeah 
halfway around the world, you know, using fossil fuels. It's just, it's just crazy, and and it's 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 a difficult thing to wean ourselves off because now we've we've become used to it having twenty different varieties of apple in the supermarket or strawberries out of season or asparagus from Peru, and and it's it's great to have that, but. I think every time you buy something like that, you need to be aware of the journey it's made and say, hang on, instead of that asparagus, why don't you buy this broccoli that was grown like 10 miles away? It's, 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 it's crazy. You know, there's a movement here in Canada about 20 or 25 years ago. It was called the 100-mile diet. And basically, eat within 100 miles of where you live. And in summer, it's really easy. In winter, you know, if you're on the coast, it's still really easy. It's a bit more difficult in, you know, in the interior because it gets gets pretty cold. Um but but uh, one thing that, you know, a lot of people I talked to, you know, back then, even now, they want to grow their own food. You know, everyone has a lawn, but they don't know, like, what's easy to grow? What are some easy first steps? You know, you, you've done this with your Cedarwood Homestead. What are some, some suggestions you could make for someone who wants to, you know, start the journey of maybe growing some of their own food? Are there certain vegetables that, that are really easy yeah, well, the ones we have gluts of um, aren't, aren't necessarily the ones that you go, oh, my God, great. Uh, like <laughs> pumpkins and courgettes and marrow, super easy. They grow, they grow everywhere. And, yeah, even from one plant, you, you, you've got loads and loads and loads. Courgettes, um, as a chef, they're probably not the, the, the sexiest veg out there, but they're, they're really easy. And there's some amazing different types of pumpkins and squash out there. They don't have to be the, the classic Halloween pumpkin. You get some really small ones. You get spaghetti squash, which when you when you cook it, it comes out like spaghetti. Um, so they're really good. Tomatoes are amazing when you when you home grow them instead of buying the the, the pap that you get you buy in supermarkets that have been grown in heated greenhouses. Uh, so tomatoes are really good, um, and and it's surprisingly easy to grow stuff in in a really small space. So you don't have to have a big kind of homestead or even a big garden to do it. You know, you, you, you've got um, vertical towers with it you know with the grow lights and ultraviolet and all this kind of stuff now as well which is is, is pretty easy to, to to grow stuff and then yeah you, you've got the speciality ones like aubergines and peppers which are great if you can get it indoors under, underneath some glass um or in a polytunnel we've got a couple of polytunnels here um so it is pretty easy the, the best thing what we're trying to do here we, we live in a really small village is try and hook up with four or five other families or households and, and Kind of pull your resources so if one person grows courgettes another person grows peppers another person's got a polytunnel of tomatoes and eat butter so you, you just swap which is what we've done for you know tens of thousands of years yeah again harking back to that kind of common sense and this is what humans have always done instead of just being it's me 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 it can only you know I've, I've got to grow it all in my garden just yeah open up the net a little bit and, and talk to your neighbours and say, okay, this year you grow spuds, I'll, I'll grow some onions uh, and we're away and we'll, we'll just swap. Which I, I, I is something we need to do to connect more with the community, which goes hand in hand with eating what's in your environment and yeah, getting away from this fossil fuel, climate change, yeah, capitalist-based greed. <laughs> we get hundreds of tomatoes and you, you know, you plant them, you make sure, you know, if it doesn't rain in a week, you give them, a little bit of water, but you know, when you can pick, when you can pick your vegetables, I, I spent all my summers on a farm as a kid, freshly picked vegetables or fruit. It's like, it's like nothing you ever have before. I mean, you can just go into your backyard and pick a courgette or take some tomatoes for a tomato salad. It, it's like eating candy. They're so good, but we've gotten used to eating stuff in the supermarket, which might've been picked three or four weeks ago and tomatoes, they look good, but you know, they have a bit of tomato flavor, but 
um, yeah, the only problem is you have too many. So then you make friends with your neighbors and your family by giving them, you know, a few few pounds or a box of tomatoes. They think, who are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's also that, um, preserving them as well. Yeah, I've been canning a lot this year, which isn't a thing that's big in England for some reason. But in the States and I guess Canada, it's it's, it's quite a big thing amongst homesteaders and, 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 and farms. If you've got a glut of tomatoes, just, just boil them down to, to a passata, run it through a, you know, a moody sieve. And then, and then can it a pressure can, and they can just, you don't have to pay money for you know re- refrigeration or, or freeze them. Just have, have it in a jar on the shelf and and tap into it whenever you, whenever you want. Now we we got loads of jars of tomato. We, we had so many it was ridiculous, um, but we, we're we're cracking on through it now, which is great. Otherwise, it would have just you know what are you going to do? You can't you, you can't eat that many tomatoes in one in one go before they go off. So you either have to get rid of them to, to neighbours. Or to as animal feed, or, or or try and preserve it somehow. Uh, our goal for next or this summer coming up is we want to try fermenting more and pickling more because I love pickled things. But for me, it was always a black box. So I've started just pickling onions. That's easy. But uh, I'm always asking people I know are into it. Like, how do you do that? How do you do this? And so that's kind of the next goal is you know because because as you said, my my grandmother uh, when she moved to Canada, they lived in a sod hut on the prairies. You know, a, a house made of made of uh, made of sod. And in her basement, she had just a wall of everything was pickled or jarred and, you know, trying to go back to there because we do, we have so much produce in, you know, July, August and early September and, you know, they give it away and then come October, you know, it's all done. The first frost is here and uh, everyone's going back to the supermarket. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but um, you know, I don't know whether it was actually because of you know, Ukraine and Russia or the energy crisis, but yeah, suddenly in, for the first time in probably a generation, the food food security has been threatened as well. Um, so suddenly, yeah, supermarkets haven't quite got as much food, or sometimes they haven't got yeah yeah any potatoes or onions in. Um, and Brexit didn't help as well. <sighs> Idiots. But, um, <laughs> but 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 that that's another reason why you yeah you should be growing your own, you know, growing your own stuff cause, and get a good store of. Yeah, yeah, passata and, and cooked off courgette just in case you're really hungry. <laughs> um, I, I can't go without this one question. You know, you're a chef, you're in the back country, you know, remote places cooking. You know, what are some of your favorite meals? You know, if you have a few ingredients that you like making when you're out, you know, uh, on the kayak or just, you know, just away from home, something that people can do maybe if they're backpacking. Mussels are pretty much a go-to. Mussels are great. You know, when when it's low tide and you just scoot in with your kayak and you've got and green and we we had we had some massive mussels that that must have been 20, 30 years old. Um, but yeah, you pick those. Just get you have a pan and loads of wet seaweed on top, which and they steam as they go just open and, and, and you eat it like that. It's great. And I nearly always have a um a little box of sea salt with me as well, just as a little chefy. Chef, you pinched to go with it, um, but but the, the fish as well is brilliant, and, and and yeah, a lot of the stuff I cook has been and will be in in Greenland. So there's always it's kind of seal fat as well. They have this thing called eganek, which is fermented seal fat, which tastes like a blue cheese. Yeah, but it's not. It's like this. It's like it's like speck or lardo. It's, it's amazing. But a, a, a little spoon of that in a pan, and then you just pick. You, you just caught a cod, and you, you just cook it in that. Just simple like that. But it's. You know, when you're sitting on a rock and you've got this the fresh cod that was that was jumping about about 20 minutes before, and you're looking out of the fjords and there's icebergs, 
It can't be beat. It's absolutely fantastic. It sounds like you're going to eat really well on your uh, your kayak. You know, I think of backpacking where you dehydrate some vegetables, you got some dried pasta or something, and you know you're trying to make something taste good. In your case, you're going to have some delicious meals uh, with the fresh seafood. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's, there's going to be some good stuff out there. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mike, this has been incredible, not only hearing about your trip, but also all the all the learning you're going to do. You know, a lot of trips, it's just about the trip. But in your case, tackling microplastics, looking at the gut biome, um, it's just really, really fascinating. Uh, I want to say thanks for being on the podcast today and sharing all this uh, with us. Absolute pleasure. Perhaps I'll come back on again afterwards. Uh, if, if people want to follow along and follow your trip, where can they find you? Um, I'll be posting most of the time from Greenland as well. Um, Instagram will be the the, the go-to one, I guess. Uh, Mike Keen Cooks. Uh, Just stick it in there. I should pop up. Um, And I'll have a live uh, tracker on me as well, which will be marking my progress on a map on my website, which is uh, mikekeen.co, just .co at the end there. Um, So they're the main two. I'll also uh, be posting stuff on YouTube. I think it's Mike Keane Cooks as well. Just type in Mike Keane and yeah, you've got some weird guy <laughs> with, with, with a rotten bit of seal or, or, or a horrible looking bird. That would be me. <laughs> uh, I'll put links to all those in the show notes because I'll definitely want to follow along. This is such a cool expedition. Uh, and thanks everyone for listening in to this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. We'll be back next week to explore the world and hear about more epic adventures. Listen to other episodes of the 10 Adventures podcast on Amazon Music at amazon.com slash 10adventures.